Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, George the Sixth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. I'm deeply confused. We've just uh, finished recording George the Sixth, and it was such an epic episode and we're both uh, far too interested in the Second World War to cut very yeah, much of it out. Yeah, yeah. So what we've decided to do, as you will now realise, is to cut the episode in half. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be just doing the factors, battling the scandal, subjectivity, etc. Right. We've already done the biography episode. I've just recorded that. Uh, which we've just recorded. Right. So. Cheerio. Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy it. So here we go, reviewing George the Sixth. Now, before we get on to doing the factors, we'll just quickly do a recap of his biography, his life and times. Uh, George VI was born in 1895, the son of George V and Mary of Teck. He became king in 1936 when he was about 41 years old, and his relationship to Elizabeth II, he is the father of Elizabeth II. Now, he was rather overshadowed by his older brother, Edward VIII, who was very handsome, very charismatic, very modern. In contrast, George VI, he's got chronic stomach problems, knock knees, so he had to wear splints, developed a really bad stammer. He was quite shy, quite tearful, uh, struggled at school with his mathematics. However, he did manage to scrape his way into naval college, and like his father, George V, he went into the Navy. So in the First World War, he was a serving sailor, Still had his tummy problems, but he did manage to man a gun turret uh, in the Battle of Jutland in 1916, the last great naval uh, battle. Uh, When he came back from the war, he met Elizabeth Boas Lyons, uh, who we now know as the Queen Mother. Fell head over heels in love with her. She wasn't quite so sure about him. As such, she had to propose three times uh, before she agreed to marry him. But uh, it was just as well that he kept at it because they had a very close relationship, probably the closest royal partnership since Victorian Albert. And what's more, with the help of one Lionel Logue, an Australian speech therapist, he was able not exactly to cure himself of his stammer, but he was able to speak in public and indeed speak with his father with much more confidence. So the combination of Logue and Elizabeth really has a big impact on improving his self-confidence. However, when the abdication crisis comes along in 1936, George V dies, Edward VIII becomes king, but Edward VIII wants to marry the soon-to-be-twice-divorced American Wallace Simpson. Church of England doesn't accept remarriage while the previous spouse is still alive. So he come, Edward VIII came into conflict with Baldwin, with Lang, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and in the end, he couldn't marry, 
so he divorced. George VI, not looking forward to becoming king at all, sobbed on his mother's shoulder for an hour when he discovered the news. Unlike his brother, he got a strong sense of duty and, as such, ended up falling out with Edward VIII over issues of titles for Wallace, which George VI wouldn't, uh, wouldn't allow. Edward VIII had lied about his finances. But much more concerning for George VI was the rise of fascism, particularly Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. By 1939, Britain and France went to war with Germany, France defeated after six weeks, Britain forced to evacuate from Dunkirk. Britain survived the Blitz, um, avoid being invaded. 1941, Russia and America come into the war um, allied with Britain. And over the next few years, they gradually push Germany back. Russia storm into Berlin in April 1945, Hitler commits suicide. America drop the atom bombs on Japan and the war is over. After the Second World War, 1945, a very surprise result in which Clement Attlee's Labour Party defeated the very popular Winston Churchill. George VI struggled a little bit initially with Attlee, though they actually ended up getting on rather well, but George wasn't quite so sure about the socialist revolution that was really led by Labour with mass-scale nationalisation. And sadly for George VI, his chronic health problems really plagued him after the war. He wasn't able to enjoy the peace. Uh, he had to have his entire left lung removed due to suffering from lung cancer. In February 1952, um, he suffered from coronary thrombosis during the night, and he died at uh, the very young age of 56. So, that was the life of George VI, and now we're going to review him. Battleiness! Quite a lot of battleiness, mm. George VI. And, as we said earlier, he starts off in the First World War. Yeah, this is huge. Two world wars. Yeah. Now, as you said, he suffered a lot of ill health in the First World War, but 1916, um, he was on board the HMS Collingwood when war broke out, but he left his sickbed when uh, they were called to action stations, rushed to man the 12-inch guns of a turret on the Collingwood in the Battle of Jutland. That is amazing. And the Jutland was the last great naval battle in history. Mm. And there he was. Mm. Um, the ship missed the main part of the action, but it did sink one light cruiser, helped destroy another one, and damaged a battle cruiser. Major boost for the royal family, having yeah, yeah, one of their chaps on board. Yeah. And uh, it did a good thing for him as well. George V declared, I'm pleased with my son. Hey. Which, again, Edward VIII, who was stuck not being allowed to do anything in the trenches, would have been absolutely gutted again. Yeah, but this little chap needs a boost. He does. So he wrote to uh, his brother, Edward VIII, saying, When I was on top of the turret, I never felt any fear of shells or anything else. It seems curious, but all sense of danger and everything else goes except the one longing of dealing death in every possible way to the enemy. <laughs> Bloodlust. Bloodlust. Uh, but his ill health returned, so he left the Navy, and then he joined the Royal Naval Air Service, ah. which then in 1918 becomes the RAF, Royal Air Force. So he's the first royal to be a qualified pilot. And uh, he's also one of the first officers of the RAF, flight lieutenant. Well, yeah, he's actually flying then. Uh, he doesn't fly too much because right. uh, ill, ill health doesn't do too much for him and he's a bit of a nervous flyer which mm. isn't great <laughs> the RAF. Oh but so he's one of the founding officers of the RAF and he fought at the Battle of Jutland pretty good stuff that's, actually I mean that's a lot better than we've had for yeah. hundreds of years really very much so now in the Second World War George of course has a role as mm. the king um, there's a bit of a split here between one I'm counting as battleiness one I'm counting as subjectivity so mm. it appears in both 
for battliness in the Second World War. In 1939, uh, between Munich, but before Poland, mm. so before the war started, George VI went to visit America. Mm. The US, again, isolationist at this point, but uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, who saw the coming conflict and wanted to prepare the way for America joining, invited George to come and have a visit, which was the first ever visit by a reigning monarch of Britain to America. First ever, I suppose, yeah. As a yeah, reigning cause... monarch. So Edward VII had visited as Prince of Wales. Oh, yes. But this so, is the first time as king. Oh, okay. Somebody so gone. even even <coughs> when it was part of the empire? Okay, yeah, no one, went no one went to it. Mm. Part okay. of the problem, of course. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, but, so why, why, is there a reason why America would have a natural leaning towards joining the side of the Allies in the First and Second World War? Well, I mean, we've still got, you know, lots of trade, the language, mm. cultural... There is a common sort of bond. Yeah, they're uncomfortable, of course, about Britain's empire. Yeah. But... You know, compared to Germany, it's not, so. not quite as bad. Mm. Um, so FDR wants to improve ties, and he thinks that the head of states have got a good relationship that will help bypass some of the diplomatic channels. Conversations at his Hyde Park in New York residence um, helped pave the way for an Anglo-American agreement, whereby America sent Britain destroyers, naval ships, in, uh, in Swapsea mm. for Caribbean bases. Oh, right. So that was quite important for the Battle of the Atlantic that we had those extra yeah. ships yeah. to act as escorts. For the Caribbean bases then mm. permanently in the hands of America. Mm. Mm. Um, there were fears of invasion, of course, in nineteen. Well, in fact, in nineteen thirty-nine, as well as nineteen forty, Neville Chamberlain, um, when he was Prime Minister, planned to move Court and Parliament out of London to somewhere safer. But George VI refused to leave London. So, as Queen Elizabeth said, "The children won't leave without me. I won't leave without the King, and the King will never leave." Mm. So he uh, travels around George VI with a stet gun in his car by his side. Uh, spoke of fighting with the resistance movement should an invasion actually come, and he installed a shooting range in the grounds of Buckingham Palace for the family to practice on, because they were concerned that the Germans might send in parachutists to abduct them. Wow! Which they had done for royal families in mainland Europe. Well, oh yeah, of course they did, mm. and then rescued Mussolini in the same mm. way. And uh, King Harkon of uh, Norway asked George what would happen when he was visiting, what would happen if German parachutists actually landed. Mm. So to test it out, George pressed the alarm signal. Well, he has a button in his Yeah, there's a panic, yeah, panic yeah. button for Nothing much happened for a while. And then uh, eventually Ekri sort of went walking off to make some inquiries. He was told by a police sergeant that uh, no attack was pending because no one had told him about one. And then eventually, uh, guardsmen entered the gardens and started thrashing the undergrowth like beaters at a hunt, looking for parachutists. That is farcical. Security was stepped up. (laughs) (laughs) George uh, initiates the George Cross and the George Medal during the war, which was for conspicuous acts of bravery by civilians. Mm. And he conferred more than 44,000 during the war. Wow. Uh, including to the entire island of Malta in 1943. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Terribly bombed again by Germany, really sort of sieged. A key sieged. island in the middle <clears throat> of the Med. Yeah. And it was held by those three biplanes. Mm. Amazing, amazing story. There's a film right there. Yeah. Anyone listening? <laughs> George was straight about the slow pace of the war, so it wasn't until 1943 he was actually able to make any visits. So he went to North Africa and then, as I said, to, to Malta, also Italy in 1944. And he helped design a sword uh, which was presented to Stalin to honour the citizens of Stalingrad. 
Mm, that's that's quite a that's quite a message. A sword. Because mm. mm. they weren't sure because they thought a medal didn't seem quite right. So they thought, what can we do? They thought a sword. You'd probably like a sword. Mm, it's quite startling. Mm. At D Day, um, when the plans were going on for that, Churchill, who hadn't been quite sure about D Day, was worried it was going to be another Gallipoli. <laughs> but once he was signed up for it, he denou- he announced to George he was determined that he was going to be on board HMS Belfast on the first wave. So Belfast was kind of not landing obviously because it's a big ship but it was not far mm. from the beaches sending in yeah. troops and watching Churchill said yeah day one I'm going to be on board he wants to be on board something that's shelling so he can feel active yeah and be in that last great mm. uh, invasion and George VI said that's a good idea I'd like to come along as well and Churchill says yeah it's a great idea <laughs> they planned a jolly together yeah to oh, D-Day and Elizabeth yeah. said yeah this is a brilliant idea she wants to go as well? No, no, she said they oh, can go. No. And then the kids come along, sandwiches are handed out. So Church is in favour, George VI is going to do it, Elizabeth supports him, so then he tells uh, his uh, private secretary, and his private secretary thought that it was an insane idea. <laughs> Who is this wise man? Pointed out the myriad problems this would cause. <laughs> uh, so on closer inspection of the idea, George accepted it probably wasn't feasible. Yeah. But Churchill was still determined to go. Yeah. So George VI... Um, you know, and Churchill was saying, well, you know, the king can't leave without Parliament saying so, but I'm Prime Minister, I can do what I want. Yeah. It's British territory, so you don't have to give me permission to leave, I can do blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Very selfish. So eventually, George VI had to threaten to personally drive down to Portsmouth to stop him leaving. Well, he'd say to whoever was boarding the boat, said, don't let that man on. Yes. Wow. <laughs> That's the only way that Churchill eventually, rather grudgingly, uh, stepped down. Wow. That's amazing. But as uh, George Rochin saying, my dear Winston, please consider my own position. I am a younger man than you. I am a sailor, and as king, I am the head of all three services. There is nothing I would like better than to go to sea, but I have agreed to stop at home. Is it fair that you should do exactly what I should have liked to do myself? He's just, he's just jealous. Yeah. <laughs> so neither of them go to D-Day. But I think if George VI had been there at D-Day, that would have just been an automatic Rex Factor. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Didn't even need to have playoffs, that was just it. No, <laughs> we, could have, we could have made this podcast last two minutes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they were they were planning this lovely trip together, getting on like a house on fire. Yeah. Churchill couldn't go, and then they both had a fight, and they both couldn't go. Mm. Well, George VI can go, and then... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. it would be ridiculous. Yeah, right. Uh, so, as well as George VI, of course, there's other stuff going on in the Second World War. Mm. And there were a lot of things that we would choose to celebrate mm. from our record there. Of course, in 1940, Churchill famously said that uh, if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Hell of a, he's a hell of an orator, isn't he? Yeah, needed to. Dunkirk, of course, where we lost uh, Battle of France, but 26th of May, hundreds of thousands of British and French soldiers are stranded on the beach and harbour at Dunkirk. Churchill warned the House of Commons to expect hard and heavy tidings. Mm. They didn't expect anything good at all. George VI called for a week of prayer. That'll help. I'm not sure that's happened since Ethelred the Unready. No, man the ships. Man the pews. They presumed they'd only be able to manage to evacuate about 30,000 before the Germans came in and either killed or imprisoned the Mm. rest of them. However, bad weather grounded the Luftwaffe and Operation Dynamo, as it was called, directed from the tunnels of Dover Castle. Oh, it's just so cool. <laughs> You've got to go there and see them. It's amazing. Amazing, the tunnels are still there. 
and the rooms. Uh, so then the little ships, Dutch coasters, lifeboats and the Royal Navy managed to evacuate over 300,000 troops. It's just a phenomenal number. What would he have done in the Second World War without that extra 270,000 troops? Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Lose, of course, all the equipment, mm. but nevertheless, mm. it's the entire army. After that, we have the Battle of Britain, Germany planning to invade the United Kingdom again, the first time in centuries. They required air and sea superiority. Initially, they target fighter command, convoys, airfields, but Britain producing new planes quicker than Germany in this period, and the Spitfires prove a surprisingly effective mm. match for the Messerschmitts. And uh, Hitler gets bored, of course, and starts bombing other stuff, so the RAF hold out. That's the key, isn't it? That when they switched from uh, sort of pinpoint pressure points like the airfields to, to the Blitz, mm. gave us a reprieve. And also, that's surprising, isn't it? You get the. Um, Everyone always thinks of Germany as a great industrial power and Britain as a bit Heath Robinson <laughs> muddles through. But actually mm. producing planes faster. Mm. Well, you know, the industrial power of Britain then was pretty... And impressive. it's one of those things that did start kind of in that last couple of years of appeasement. You could argue in Chamberlain's defence that it does actually buy Britain a bit of time mm. to mm. build up. Um, El Alamein, of course, 1942. At this point, Britain never beaten the German army and Rommel, the uh, desert rat... Mm. Uh, of Germany he was very, a very successful military leader, but his supply lines in Egypt badly stretched. So uh, Montgomery, for Britain, saw an opportunity to inflict defeat. An attritional campaign forced Germany back. And then uh, Anglo-American landings in Operation Torch, sort of as a precursor almost to D-Day, mm. landings on the beaches in Algeria and Morocco, saw the Allies sweep through North Africa by 1943. Mm. Germany out. Done. Undercover, oper- undercover, undercover operations in Second World War, so very exciting. Lots and lots of uh, films. Oh, they, yeah. I mean, there's no end. Every time I read about it, there's a new fascinating one. Uh, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, launched very effective guerrilla actions behind enemy lines. Mm. And, of course, the boarding of the U-110 by British soldiers. No, I've seen another documentary <laughs> called U-571, and it was definitely Americans. <laughs> Uh, captured the Enigma code books and keys, and of course at Bletchley Park, major contribution to law by decoding uh, Enigma machines, mm. so that we knew all of what Germany. I mean, that is doing. just phenomenal. That mm. the Bletchley Park story, and it's, it's not just decoding it, but it's then all these false operations, so yeah. that Germany don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recorded it. And isn't there some scandal around potentially letting Coventry be bombed in order mm. to l- not reveal that we had the code mm. broken? Mm. Amazing, absolutely amazing. The uh, most amazing thing I've ever heard about Bletchley, though, was um, apparently once all these Enigma machines were cracked, mm. it was like, so secret until like, the eighties or nineties yeah. that um, they had all these Enigma machines and then gave all the Enigma machines that they captured to various friendly countries yeah. afterwards. <laughs> said these are really good. We've captured them from the Germans. <laughs> Use these, and we're listening to everyone else. Amazing. Continue to spy. Yeah. Um, of course, also, then, the Great Invasion, we have D-Day, Operation Overlord. The day before, um, was it the day before, two days before, the airborne assault secured some of the bridges mm. and tried to sort of take out some of the artillery positions. Then US, UK and Canada land numerous beaches in Normandy. Again, the codes, of course, meant that Germany were expecting it somewhere else. Mm. So they weren't fully prepared for it in Normandy. As you said, Churchill feared a new Gallipoli, but casualties much lower than had been feared. They secure the beaches, see off the counterattack, and as you said, two months later, they liberated Paris. Boom. And then, of course, victory. We win the war. Yay. VE Day crowds congregate in front of Buckingham Palace, chanting, We want the king. 
though George and Elizabeth and, uh, make numerous uh, appearances on the balcony that day and also invite, uh, invited Churchill to join them. Right, uh, numerous victory tours around the country. And in 1946, George VI addresses the first assembly of the United Nations, which is held in London. They got that together quite quickly, didn't they? Mm. For some reason, they sort of thought that maybe the League of Nations a good idea. shouldn't keep that one going. Yeah, um, Held in, in London, the first one. Mm. Well, wow. So, a lot of very impressive stuff in the, mm, uh, for yeah. battling us to just yeah. six. Absolutely. But as ever with these things, there are some downsides. Mm. First World War, he is ill most of the time. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, like Nelson in the, his defence, he suffered from seasickness. 1914, he was in convalescence after suffering appendicitis. 1915, severe abdominal pains returned, so he had to have a special diet and daily enemas. Oh, God, poor bloke. And after Jutland, his problems returned, and he was basically invalided out of the Navy. Mm. And then when he joined the RAF, and say he wasn't a fighter pilot, but... Kind of like in Blackadder, where Captain Darling tries and says there's nothing cushy about life in the women's auxiliary. <laughs> George is actually in charge of Number Four Squadron Boy Wing. Right. Okay. So it's not quite the uh, yeah. the uh, glamorous no. fighter pilots of the First World War, and uh, he wasn't a natural pilot, and he was never really allowed to fly solo due to his general physical and psychological condition. Is that an official report? Yeah. Yeah. So he wasn't, he's not really, yeah, not really up to Lord Flashart. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Second World War, there's lots of good stuff, but there's also a lot that maybe isn't quite so successful for Britain. Initially, of course, you know, there was the policy of appeasement. Just said there's arguments that actually that was quite important. It bought us time. It got the country together. People, as in the public, would never have accepted war in thirty six, thirty seven. George VI was a strong supporter of the policy of appeasement. He even offered to provide further support by writing personal letters to Hitler and Mussolini, right. which uh, Chamberlain and Halifax didn't think would really help very much. No. Um, we then had the phony war, of course. The German generals believed that had France and Britain, of course, made an attack in this period, Germany militarily was not prepared for it at all. Really? As they thought an invasion by France in these early months would have defeated Germany quite easily. Wow. And so, Battle of France, again, as you said, the Allies presumed Germany would be reenacting the Schlieffen plans, so they fortified the Maginot Line. Germany just got around it and won crushing victory in just six weeks. Yeah. Given that the First World War, you had four hard years of stalemate. Yeah. And then just six weeks. That's amazing, gone. isn't it? Four years to six yeah. weeks. And again, it was a huge risk by Germany to go to the Ardennes. And again, they, you know, they weren't entirely sure whether or not. Yeah. If they'd called their bluff. Britain and France and again Germany probably would have been I can't believe they didn't just sort of lace the whole forest with mines or something mm. should we just put a guard something, on it a wall a fence <laughs> just something but so what happened to the French troops then when they came through they just scattered just completely well yeah because you know, the, the tanks go through and of course they're, no they're stuffed they're they're, the tanks, yeah. they're looking the other way imagine yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're just going past <laughs> yeah that yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, obviously, that's not very successful. And Dunkirk, for all the amazingness of it, Churchill, once again, bang on the money, he said, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fabulous loss. Yeah, we ran away very successfully, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, Operation Sea Line, as you were saying, you know, the fact that Hitler changed tactics was very important. You could argue a bit lucky in a way. Yes, if he kept on targeting the airfields and indeed the new radar stations, mm. 
could have done much more damage, but he got bored and was annoyed and Britain bombed German cities. Oh, yeah, that was a masterstroke. So then he was like, oh, we've got to get them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we were quite fortunate that Hitler was kind of not so strong, Yeah. some of the strategies. 1942, uh, we were overstretched in the Far East. Um, Japan destroyed two modern British warships, had air and naval superiority, and then the impregnable fortress of Singapore was taken by Japan after just one week. Again, that's another forgotten little battle, really. 80,000 British troops surrendered to 36,000 Japanese. That's amazing. That was, yeah, that was set to be just um, impregnable, and mm. this was a linchpin of the... Don't even need to forest. think about Singapore. Yeah. yeah, just sitting there drinking cocktails. Yeah. Mm. As Churchill said, the worst disaster and largest capitulation in British history. Mm. After D-Day, um, trying to push the war on a little bit, trying to get to... Berlin first, Montgomery had the idea of Operation Market Garden. Ah, yes. Planning to push in Germany a huge airborne operation uh, in the Netherlands, so around 30 odd thousand parachutists um, or and also people on gliders were coming in. Um, several bridges were taken, but others destroyed and resistance at Arnhem proved too strong, a bridge too far. No. Mm-hmm. Yes. So after nine days, they forced to retreat with heavy casualties. Mm. And of course, the war wasn't over. By the Christmas, nineteen forty-four. Never make that promise. The war will be over by Christmas. I mean, how many times? I have seen a documentary about this called Band of Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Very realistic. Documentary. Oh, yeah, spot on. And also, there's an appendix to this documentary called Saving Private Ryan. Mm. Um, none of which seem to go into the amount that actually really Russia seemed to have won the war. And they didn't even call it the Second World War, did they? It was a great patriotic war. Yeah. 1941 to 1945. Yeah. If you ever see the memorials. Germany, on the incredible journey, on the verge of capturing Moscow at one point, they could actually see the spires of the Kremlin. Yeah, that's amazing. So close. It's like Richard the Lionheart seeing Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) Um, Stalin issued what was called Order 227 which is known as not a step back. So people just had to fight on. So they had tie commandments of people whose job it was just to shoot anybody that ran backwards. So they just kept yeah. on pressing yeah. on to get shot by the Germans or shot by your own side. Yeah, another um, good documentary on this is called Enemy at the Gates. Mm. And um, <laughs> seeing people run into battle, one with a bullet, one with a rifle. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of think, oh my, you know, just... So they didn't have enough weapons to go around, so people would be running behind, so that when the person in front is yeah. killed, you just then pick up the weapon and <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, do your you five You really are meters. right at... Well, the enemy are at the gates, you know, they're right at the end. It's it's the end of all things, isn't it? 90% of Stalingrad's living area was destroyed, so civilians are having to fight anti aircraft guns being manned by women, Mm. which the Germans were quite annoyed when they discovered that after several days of hard (laughs) fighting that they'd been struggling with women. Bitter, bitter fighting, but Russia hold out, push back all the way to Berlin. So, you know, when you look at the casualties, um, UK lost about 380, including the Empire, 380,000 soldiers, 70,000 civilians, so about 450,000 in all. The US, about 420,000. Germany, 5.5 million soldiers, yeah. and about 1.5 to 3.5 million civilians, which is about 7 to 9 million. Yeah. Huge losses. But Russia, t- between 22 and 25 million soldiers, and between 38 and 55 million civilians. So that's nearly the best part of 100 million people. <laughs> yeah. That's so yeah. compared to Britain and Empire's five hundred thousand. Yeah, and Britain actually lost almost. It was almost half of what Britain lost in the First yeah. World War. 
So, I mean, Russia bear the brunt of it. Absolutely horrific. Yeah. I mean, imagine if Russia, that front wasn't opened up. Yeah. It, they'd have Germany would have all of these divisions pouring in. There's no way we'd have stood a chance unless yeah. it, potentially that that attack in 1940. But yeah, mm, yeah, you can see why um have a bit of a bit of a chip by not being quite so recognised, perhaps. Indeed. Mm. <laughs> um, and of course, this is not a great uh, period for Britain in terms of its empire. This is why we have imperial decline. The empire breaks up after the First World War. The legacy you've got the Cold War between the USA and the USSR. Britain, having been the most powerful nation in the world, is now very Specifically, a second-rate power. Mm. There's sort of American satellite, really. Yeah. We mm. also have the Forgotten War, mm. Korea, mm. very uh, neglected in history. Background mm. to this: Korea was divided in the Second World War between um, US and USSR along the 38th parallel, as it was known. Um, failure to hold free elections in 1948 saw an escalation in tensions, and then North Korea, which had been set up by the USSR, invaded the South. And it was mainly the US that kind of, and obviously South Korea that fought mm. this battle, but the UK sent about 12,000 troops as well. Early fighting, the North had a lot of success. The US counterattack pushed them back over the 38th parallel, but then Mao Zedong for China feared that America would then push on towards them. So he sends lots of troops in, they push back, and they're stuck. You see, if only we'd helped them with the um, League of Nations, they might have had more faith in us, but. Indeed. Major battle for British is at Imjin, where the Ch- China launched a huge offensive. About 27,000 Chinese troops in this weak point in the line, which was held by 773 men of the Gloucestershire Regiment. Oh, just on that one hill? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fought them off for the whole day. Apparently, Vickers' guns were seizing up because they were so hot, they were just firing mm. constantly. Mm. Uh, do you know, do you want to know an interesting Rex fact? Go on. Do you know who's manning one of those guns? Not specifically this battle but many of it machine gun mm. Michael Caine Sir Michael Caine unbelievable sorry he's, he's an actor he's an actor you know from Elephant in the Castle I believe <laughs> Chinese eventually crossed uh, by half past eleven at night but then Gloucester hold them off at the top of the hill for another day which mm-hmm. enables sort of fir- flank of first corps to kind of regroup so they're able to hold off the next advance only 39 evaded capture wow 25% of the Allied troops there were killed, 40% of the Chinese at that battle. Wow. Well, pound for pound fighting, though, that's, oh, yeah. that's incredible. 1951, a stalemate ensues, and in 1953, just after George VI had died, of course, two weeks after Stalin died, the USSR decided it wasn't really that interested anymore. Right. And uh, withdrew their support, and an armistice was signed with the demilitarised zone, which still exists, yeah. exists today. Mm. So, we have some good stuff. Very good stuff for George VI. He fought at Jutland, good role in the Second World War, and of course we win the Second World War, all those great moments and speeches, mm. but there are a lot of bits in the Second World War which don't go quite so well. George VI was rather ill a lot of the time. Well, on a personal level, mm-hmm. we've got Jutland. Yes. That's big. He was there. He was fighting in a gun turret. That's five. Mm. Then we have, over. I mean, in the end of the day... I hate cliche. Um, <laughs> overall, we have the victory of the Second World War. Yeah. Um, I can't believe I'm saying that this, but that's at least two. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that's bringing him to seven for me. Mm. Um, Korea, a, a draw. Yeah. Let's just so the the draw cancels out the negatives and the plus. That's a zero. Yeah. Um, what else do we have? We had his sort of his just being ill all the time. The RAF's not really doing much and being mm. in trying as a boy wing. 
their defeats in the Second World their War, defeats in the, the fact War, that but it was really Russia, and of course America. Really. If you give a bit of credit to our American listeners, they kind of helped us oh, out. Oh, cr- crikey, yes. Um, yeah, impossible without the Russians, and equally as impossible without the Americans. Yeah. But... It is the Second World War, yes. and he fought in Jutland. He did. There were there were individual battles that didn't go well in the, in the first and Second World War, but ultimate victories, which we went over last time, yeah. um, time four. I'm going for eight. I can't see. Ooh. I'm giving him another point for just placing that image in my mind of him and Churchill sitting on the bridge of HMS Belfast and his soldiers. And so, yeah, eight. Ooh, that's a big score. Mm. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give him a seven. I think mm. it, it deserves to be good. I think the negatives are outweighed by the positives. Mm. And the fact that he was there at Jutland, you've got to give points mm. to that. So that's 15 for battliness. Scandal. I'm afraid I've not really got an awful lot here. No, I mean, this is where he excelled, he'd imagine, but really failed. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth wasn't his first romance. He had his first liaison during the First World War, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, Edward VIII wrote about to one of his girlfriends at the time. Uh, Took a fancy to a few other women. There was Phyllis Monkman, who was a popular dancer and leading lady of the London stage, confident and engaging. Apparently Edward VIII encouraged this, so that George had his first little proper relationship. Uh, And then there was Sheila Chisholm, a married Australian woman. George absolutely enraptured with her, but George V, his father, insisted that if he wanted to become Duke of York, he'd have to give her up. Yeah. Well, he so he was having an affair as well. Mm. Well, that's and a bit scandalous. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't, you know, probably an all-out affair. It's just those sort of 1920s kind of slightly looser mm. morals. And, of course, George VI readily complies. Yeah. Gives her up straight away, becomes yeah. Duke of York, much to the disdain of Edward VIII. <laughs> Takes the heat off me, go for it. <laughs> Uh, and that's it. One. A point five. Point five <laughs> just for attempting to have a little bit of fun. I'm not even going to give him that. It's going to be a naught for me, so that's just a naught point five for Scandal. <laughs> he didn't really go for it. I can't believe I gave him naught point five. <laughs> Actually, but there we are. It's done. It's on the spreadsheet. Subjectivity. A lot of good stuff. Mm, yeah. George VI here. As Duke of York... He shows a great interest in industrial affairs, made lots of visits to factories and workshops, insisted on rather informal visits, and he didn't want any high-hat business. Mm, what's that? Uh, so sort of going around in his big high-hat, very formal, red carpet, all right. sorts of things. He didn't want that, so he wanted to see the true situation. Mm. Uh, Edward VIII nicknamed him the foreman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Just looking at factories all the time. Yeah. Oh, he's funny, that man. <laughs> Um, and he also established the Industrial Welfare Society, which was set up to involve, uh, well, he was president of it rather for 16 years, to involve employers and labour leaders trying to improve working conditions and amenities mm. uh, of, of working class men. Uh, it didn't achieve an awful lot, but nevertheless, 16 years, he gave it his patronage. And yeah. It was quite a commendable activity. And then inspired by his heroic role in the RAF, mm. uh, in 1921, he set up the Duke of York summer camps for boys. Oh, right. And this was an exercise for having these camps between working class and public school boys. Oh, good idea. To try and integrate a yeah. bit more. So this period of class conflict and yeah. going them all so together. He's active. He's trying to do things himself. He, is, he really is, very much is. And he really enjoyed these. He uh, attended all of them from 1929 to 39, except in 1934. Uh, and he was known as the Great Chief. <laughs> and um, it gets a little bit of stick because there's a lot of camping, ha- hiking, singing campfire songs. Yeah. A little bit sort of Boy Scouts, but 1921 to 39, around 6,000 boys from all these different oh, classes attend. 
And then as soon as the Hitlerese comes along, they're all shut down very quickly. Then they are armed. Yeah. <laughs> sent into battle. And he was quite surprising, actually. He was something of a sportsman. Really? Yeah. An excellent shot and horseman, better than Edward VIII and both of these. He got a unique hat-trick in cricket, where in the successive balls he bowled out Edward VII, George V, and Edward VIII. No way! That's super. really good. Uh, golf, he played with... <laughs> <a> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just imagine the radio trying to commentate on that. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, he was also a golfer. In 1930, he played himself in as a captain of the Royal Nature and Golf Club at St Andrews. Edward VIII had done this previously and apparently he'd performed such a dismal opening drive that for George VI the caddies were standing disloyally close. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, apparently it was, it was quite a good shot. Right. Uh, but he had to give it up because it was bad for his temper. Yeah. So he did gardening instead. Mm. But he was also a very keen tennis player. And in 1926 he uh, partnered a man, Louis uh, Grieg, who had won uh, an RF uh, doubles competition which gave him automatic entry into the men's doubles at Wimbledon. So Louis and George VI play together at Wimbledon, the actual Wimbledon tournament. Oh, if only we had a, like a sports category. That's that's. I mean, they'd probably win, but that is amazing. It is amazing. Unfortunately, they were heavily defeated in the first round, six-one, six-two, <laughs> <laughs> and he never played in public again because he was playing. Le- he was left-handed, and uh, some uh, wag in the crowd shouted out, "Try the other hand, sir." <laughs> Oh, brilliant. He did make some imperial tours, not as many as Edward VIII, but uh, very successful trips during the 1920s to Kenya, Uganda, Sudan, Australia, New Zealand, and also to Jamaica, where uh, he played tennis again, and he played doubles with uh, a black man, a native. Really? Very unusual at the time. We remember Edward VIII's not quite so politically no. correct comments yeah. about people from mm. uh, different nations. And in 1947, when we went to South Africa, he was appalled when he was instructed only to shake hands with white servicemen while handing out medals this is just before apartheid yeah uh, it was coming in he did referred to the South African guards as Gestapo did he comply? Uh, I think he had to because of it but I think well, as soon as he was sort of back in British territory he was back to shaking hands yeah, again good man all that sort of thing so yeah. decent old record there mm. he was also got good stuff as a constitutional monarch abdication crisis terrible time at which to exceed he didn't want the throne but he's generally concerned for the future of the monarchy re-establishes the notion that he is there as a servant as duty mm. public duty and uh, add a royal family again so he's got his family who all love each other it's quite a nice contrast mm. Mm. So that's good 1940 when Churchill becomes Prime Minister it's actually it's a period of national crisis really France well France has fallen but we're about to have the Battle of France mm. Chamberlain has resigned we need a national government we haven't got one Chamberlain's in there anymore who's going to be Prime Minister and he had strong like many people he admires Halifax and he's got very strong reservations about Winston Churchill unlike George V in the First World War he doesn't push his own views so he sort of floated names informally but established who was the man that would actually win support and then he allows the MPs to decide who it's going to be and then once Churchill's there gives him his full support which is very important Mm, yeah Churchill has that and um, as George VI himself at the time said he was disappointed that he thought Halli- Halifax was the obvious man and indeed he later met Halifax and told him he was sorry not to have him as Prime Minister uh, so did after. Churchill ever find this out? well that was just after okay. it had all been made but actually they have an amazing relationship Churchill and George VI during the war they met every Tuesday at Buckingham Palace for lunch mm. just the two of them sometimes Elizabeth would join them and Churchill shares everything with George VI even more than he shares with the war cabinet 
Oh, wow. George Sith actually, in a way, is informally has a lot of power because he yeah. knows what's going on. Yeah. And probably, you know, the most informed and best relationship between a PM and a monarch. Yeah. You've actually had. Um, he was the only man, Winston Churchill was the only Prime Minister that George Sith referred to by his first name. Right. And he later um, said that I could not have had a better Prime Minister. Oh, okay, so he turned around. And he was, mm. he was very sad when he lost mm. in 1945 and wrote to tell him how sad he was that, mm. uh, that he'd gone. He had a lot of reservations, of course, about Labour coming in in 1945, because unlike previous Labour governments, this one was actually fully socialist. Mm. So a lot of reservations about their policies, as Hugh Gateskill said, he is, of course, a fairly reactionary person. But despite these reservations, he doesn't oppose anything they do, and even helps out to defuse a potential clash between the Commons and the Lords over iron and steel legislation, because it hadn't. The Tories had said they wouldn't oppose anything in the Lords that was in the manifesto. Iron and steel being nationalised wasn't, so we had another sort of Parliament Act thing right. going on. But George VI made it known that he hoped the Tories wouldn't contest, contest the Parliament Act, mm. and that helped to defuse the situation. Okay, so he's he, yeah, he's getting more involved than we'd imagine Elizabeth ever doing. Yeah. yeah. As to, so, as to say, the Second World War, unlike George V, he plays a major role in readying the nation for the war now that he speaks to them uh, on the BBC, and he was a, a voice for the people with Logue's help, very successful, particularly in 1939 Christmas broadcast, where he included a little-known line of poetry. Um, he said, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that might, I might tread safely into the unknown. That's nice. He became quite a yeah. in poet at the time. Um, so people were aware of his stuff but actually that kind of helped and the nervousness helped because it sort of endeared him to them they were sort of wheeling him on oh right I see not to uh, to make a mistake and they knew that it was an ordeal for him to go through so you know it's an important role Um, and he's very much in some ways living the life of his subjects certainly more so than any other monarch would Mm. be doing Uh, Buckingham Palace um, bombed on the 9th of September 1940 the bomb hit the palace didn't explode until the next day at 1.25 in the morning. Um, fortunately, nobody was killed, but if it had gone off at the time, it could have been very really? bad. Really? Mm. I didn't realise it had ever been bombed. 13th of uh, September, a few days later, two bombs fell into the quadrangle, narrowly missed George VI in his study. So he was actually hit nine times during the war, Buckingham Palace. Really? They actually lived at Windsor most of the time and then kind of came back in. Yeah. It was a little bit safer. But yeah, so um, Queen Elizabeth, when it happened, said that she was glad to have been bombed because now we can look the East End in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. sort of united. They'd both mm. been through that experience. So they made all these visits there during the Blitz, tireless visits across the country, often very soon after a place had been bombed. So they were at Coventry the day after really? it was bombed, and often mm. without any sort of prior notice or ceremony, so it'd be less intrusive. Mm. So George VI said, I feel that this kind of visit does do good at such a moment. And it is one of my main jobs in life to help others when I can be useful to them. Yeah, I've heard that they were sometimes heckled, but at least they actually went. A little bit, yeah. but I think on the main it was yeah. quite a, mm. a popular thing. They're also complying with rationing. Really? As closely as possible. Uh, they lifted the same restrictions. George VI personally marked the five-inch maximum line on the royal baths. Mm. And uh, they were subjected to clothes and food rationing. Eleanor Roosevelt, when she um, visited, noted that they had these very Spartan meals of sort of spam that served on golden plates. <laughs> yeah, nice. His dad would have liked that. He would, he probably just did that anyway. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as you noted on VE days, he was overwhelmed by the kind things people have said over our part in the war. We've only tried to do our duty during these five and a half years. I found it difficult to rejoice or relax, or is there so much hard work to deal with? 
Mm. You know, he never stops. It's always, mm. always going. Now, of course, 1945 Labour government comes in. George isn't quite sure about it, but incredible period of social reform. Amazing amounts of nationalisation and taking industries into the hands of the government. The Bank of England's civil aviation, coal mining, cable and wireless, road, rail, canals, electricity and gas, all nationalised. Right. 20% of all industry in the country comes under state control. Wide-ranging social reforms, flat-rate pensions, sickness, unemployment benefits, more comprehensive than ever before. A million new homes was way below the actual target, but you had affordable housing for low-income families for the first time. Workers get better pension schemes, they get sick leave, requirement of lunch breaks for the first Mm. time. Uh, Better pay, shorter hours, free secondary school education becomes a legal right. And, of course, the biggie uh, is the NHS. Yay! And Nuremberg Bevin fought off the opposition of the medical establishment, including the BMA, British yeah. Medical Association. Publicly funded healthcare system offers treatment free of charge at the point of use. Yeah. You pay your tax, of course, but then, regardless of how much money you've got, if you're ill, you'll be treated. Yeah, I mean, what a, what a list. And that's all Atlee. Yeah, it's all under Attlee and the Labour government. Oh, it's just brilliant. And you think of all the things and all the episodes that we've done, you've got to look at the NHS and think probably that's that's like the that's the golden crowning glory. Chalice, yeah, yeah, that's that's it. That's the um, subjectivity sword held aloft, yeah. isn't it? That's <laughs> um, and also the establishment of the Commonwealth, the 1949 London Declaration allowed the admittance of countries not within the former empire, so i.e. republics, mm. are welcome. Um, so George VI, the head of the Commonwealth, so we have a rather more appropriate form of mm. sort of international strength. No Peasing. longer empire. Yeah. Must have appeased our American friends. Of, yeah. 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 India remained, though he's no longer empire, whereas uh, Burma, Palestine and Ireland all departed mm. at this stage. And despite all of the uh, reforms, actually, unemployment rarely abo- and austerity, unemployment rarely above 2%. Productivity actually rose while the average working week shortened. Mm. All during a period of incredible economic growth. Yeah, I mean... They're just completely bankrupt. Mm. Paying back millions of Americans yeah. every day. Amazing. I mean, phenomenal what they did. There's been a lot of um, attention, obviously, on Margaret Thatcher recently who died. But, I mean, prior to this, Attlee is often sort of considered the great post-war yeah, prime definitely. minister. He kept all these characters together in this quiet management, actually managed yeah. to... Achieved so much without having to have a war to boost ratings. Yeah. And George is very stoical. You know, he overcomes his stammer, his shyness, his dread of the limelight, and he rules through a period of upheaval, of chaos, personal ill health, for which Queen Elizabeth blamed Edward VIII. And mm. um, he was exhausted by the war. A lot of ill health afterwards, of course. Scared of flying. He was scared of inspecting troops. Which is, I mean, it's all his kingly duties. Yeah. Um, when he invested Malta with the George Cross, and he performed a salute. Uh, on board ship he was actually suffering from dysentery at the time no god poor guy no wonder he did it at sea and sea sickness so much (laughs) yeah (laughs) and his final illness he bore very stoically as Queen Elizabeth um, herself afterwards said if only the king had been allowed a few years of comparative peace there can be very few kings of England whose reigns were so harried and harassed by troubles and worries and anxieties on such an immense scale Firstly, abdication and all the agony of mind. I doubted people realised how horrible it all was for the king and me to feel unwanted and to undertake such a job for such a dreadful mm. reason. Then the war with all its agony, and then after the war, which was a dreadful strain on the king. Mm. And all in quite a short period of time. Yeah, did have a lot going on his plate. But not all of it is such a rip-roaring success. Mm. And particularly if you think for subjectivity, would you want it to be a subject in this period? Mm. Mm. 
appeasement, as we said, not a great success, but from a constitutional perspective, George VI did actually overstep the mark. After Munich, George VI and Chamberlain came back and was peace and mm. all this. He invited Neville Chamberlain to join them on the balcony of Buckingham Palace to wave to the crowds. So I think the first time a commoner had been up there. Right. But this was effectively the royal support for policy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know, and a lot of people in Parliament voted against it. It was controversial. Minister Duff Cooper resigned. And he actually wanted to bestow an honour on Chamberlain as well, but Halifax advised him that it probably wouldn't be a, a very good idea because mm. it was going to be controversial. Yeah. Um, so, you know, many people said this is sort of the most unconstitutional thing since Victoria was in her most sort of. That's <laughs> 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 Yeah. You know, since the bedchamber <laughs> crisis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, that is, that's way beyond. Yeah. And it's a very, very public... He was quite lucky that uh, the Conservatives got the flack for appeasement and the Royals weren't associated with it. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Mm. Um, damage for... wasn't as bad for England and well, for Britain as it was for mainland Europe, but, you know, London, Coventry and various other cities left drab and ruined. Housing shortages, about 67,000 civilians died. Of course, about 36,000 merchant seamen killed yeah. in the Battle of the Atlantic. Yeah. Uh, as well, and there are lots of controversies as well. You know, Churchill agreeing to Stalin's border demands uh, for post-war Europe was effectively a betrayal of Poland. Yeah, completely left them. Who we the point of starting the war in the first place? Exactly. And yeah. of course, they fought uh, very heroically for Britain in the Battle of Britain. And yeah. Various other points. Bomber commands, bomb attacks on German cities, still very uh, controversial today. Of course, Dresden and Coventry are twinned. Mm. They're both just destroyed mm. completely by the war. And it's very hard life after the war. It's actually worse, if anything. Uh, President Truman, um, who took over in America after the death of FDR, cancelled the Lend-Lease Agreement. They stopped giving out money for a what? while. Uh, it's not really sure why. It was a very bad move. Of course, he re- it was then replaced with... Um, Marshall Plan. Marshall Plan. Uh, but for the country, it was effectively bankrupt, so Labour had to cut lots of imports and extend rationing. So this is austerity Britain. I mean, that's but that's so much worse than we're facing today. Yeah, much, and much worse. And look at what they introduced. Mm. And they hosted the Olympics in 1948. Yeah. That's exactly. what we do. When we have it's a recession. <laughs> right. Don't feel it. Well, exactly. We're, what fuss we made about being able to afford that. Yeah. Crikey. I mean, it's... I... Have we, have we done it? We no, no. Oh, OK. No, it's worse. No. It's worse. Uh, End of empire, of course, it's a good thing in many ways that we're no longer subjugating people, but we lose our positions as world power. And for Indian partition between India and Pakistan, it was incredibly disorganised, millions caught on the wrong side of the border. Mm. And there's really horrific um, fighting that goes Mm. on, thousands and thousands killed in this period. Um, Evelyn Waugh sort of said, looking at all of this, that George VI reign will go down in history as the most disastrous my country has known since Matilda and Stephen. Oh, well, Stephen, cracking. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit hard, but at the same time, you know, the the empire dies, we have the austerity, we have appeasement and all this sort of stuff being bombed. It's not the best time it's to be It's not in, the best in time. Britain. Um, but we've got a bit more perspective now than even more there. Mm. And although it's still incredibly recent, mm. it's hard one to judge. Because of his reign, mm. my life yeah. has been... So much better. <laughs> it's been fine. Yeah. Well, the fuss is all about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I appreciate that. So my grandparents' generation and the start of my parents' one wasn't quite so good. Mm. Still had rationing, etc. But 
the foundations that he laid. Mm. I mean, or not he, but during his period that were laid were just phenomenal. Although that is kind of the relevant point. There are much stronger characters in this period than George VI. Of course, initially he's overshadowed by his brother, Edward VIII, handsome, modern, confident. Mm. And, and George VI's entire kingship is essentially just a reaction against Edward VIII mm. and the abdication mm. crisis. He admitted to Baldwin's wife, George VI, that he had felt envious that 18 months should make so much difference between him and his brother, while uh, naval contemporaries, because they both went to naval college, um, said that it was like comparing a cock pheasant with an ugly duckling. And uh, David Starkey defined them as the hare and the tortoise. Yeah, the but tortoise, who won? The tortoise always mm-hmm. wins. George V, of course, is a very strong, overbearing character. He chose the same name as his father to emphasise continuity, and he reverts to the same old-fashioned circle of friends. He's effectively turning the clock back from all the modernising that Edward VIII was doing. And, let's be honest, Churchill was the war leader. Yeah, Churchill is the defining character of British resistance in the Second World War. He is the voice. We've seen quoting him all throughout. Mm. He's the one that was actually in charge. He was the one that actually bore the burden, was the image and the voice. George VI, you could probably tell the story of the Second World War without having to make much reference to him. And even his wife, Elizabeth, it was the making of him. Very strong and vibrant character, both in public and private. Hitler apparently described her as the most dangerous woman in Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And even then, when you think of the royal visits around the Blitz, you probably, your first image, more likely to be of her than... Yeah, well, I mean, now on the Facebook page, you might know that every so often when we reach a target of likes, we (laughs) post a lovely picture of of her with a pint of beer. (laughs) And the thought of her being the most dangerous woman in Europe, (laughs) she she was a bit... She's lovely, but... um, So he has personal limitations. Like his father, he's rather old-fashioned... Very limited interest in the arts. At one point where um, Elizabeth commissioned a man, John Piper, to do this brooding series on Windsor. These dramatic, sort of grey, powerful skyline, uh, skies, to which George VI observed, You've been pretty unlucky with the weather, Mr Piper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, what a... Oh, dear. Oh, no, that's just the sort of thing someone would say at a modern art gallery. Collected medals. Yeah. A stickler like his father for correct dress and uniform. He probably didn't like turnips. No... And, um, you know, he needs all this change going on. He's not too sure. When Noel Park was passed a National Trust, he observed that uh, everything is going nowadays. Before long, I shall have to go myself. What, because he didn't like the idea of National Parks? I just think because just everything was being taken into public ownership. Right. Okay. And, you know, there's, you could argue he's a bit of an irrelevance. The monarchy itself at this point is the argument. He's a passive monarchy shaped by events and stronger characters. Churchill's got a romantic view of the monarchy, so he really involves him and talks mm-hmm. to him. Chamberlain, very dismissive, Labour, don't really confide in him. So, um, you know. Well, I'm viewing his reign as a whole. Yeah. And for that alone, and it's mostly thanks to Attlee. Yeah. um, And the victory in the war. So if we're comparing the conditions for people when he started and when he finished... Mm much better when he finished or at least it, it's getting so much better they're mm. a bit of a reset with the war because they've been yeah. bombed and have not food but right now we're going um, that's such a victory for me and I think his um, well I'll get onto that in the actual Rex fact of it but I can't help but think this is a big 9.5 Woohoo! that is huge because if we go back to the um, the the social stuff that was implemented by yeah. 
Labour. By Labour in, what was it, 45 to 51? I mean, all the way way through Rex Factor, we've been been awarding huge points Mm. for incremental differences that add up to make a big difference, but just in five years... Mm. The whole social landscape is is what I recognise now. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't know where I'd be at sea <laughs> if I was. At, um, and you'd be very happy at sea. I would be very happy at sea. But um, joining George the Sixth with your mass travels with 1945 to 1951. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, six there you years. Go, six years. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got no problem with division. <laughs> I I just it's it's massive. It's the it's the Britain we recognise today. Mm. It's very true. Um, it's tricky because it's one of those where it's like the legacy almost mm. whereas at the time being a it's a hard time yeah. to live and there is a lot of bad stuff that happens I do think he does rule well and you know he's a good constitution mm. he shows his duty he's very committed a lot of good stuff done but it's a difficult period and I'm sort of I'm. we can't I, give the points to Elizabeth no oh no 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 yeah. no yeah <laughs> just sitting pretty uh, but I'm loath to make him the most successful subjectivity man mm. of all time, which he would be if I went any higher than eight. Who have we got before? We've got Alfred and somebody else on seventeen and a half, I think. Right. Oh no, seventeen. Even that will be a uh, Henry the Second. And Henry the Second. Well, I think I think he does deserve an eight. As I said the NHS, a free health service for everyone. Mm. That deserves to be a winner. So that's. 17 and a half for subjectivity that's the best score Yay. we have yet had longevity he is king from 1936 to 1952 which is 12 years <laughs> <laughs> or to be particular about our decimal points 15.17 years <laughs> which uh, in the patty calculator gives him a score of just 4.77 mm, that's positively Saxon dynasty not the programme. He has uh, two children, both of whom survive him. A very close family unit. They refer to each other as We Four. Oh, that's a nice. little gang. And uh, Princess Margaret um, was the first royal birth in Scotland since 1602. Of Mary? No. Um, it was uh, Stuart child that actually died quite oh, young. Okay. But yeah, since the uh, children of James the first. Mm. Since of Scotland. So two surviving children gives him a score of 3.34 for Dynasty. Mm. So that's a total score of 41.11, which, uh, oh, meets exactly level William III and Mary II. Oh, right. Sort of, kind of middle, kind of in yeah. the middle. But, of course, we have that vital question, does he have that certain something, that great achievement, mm. that lasting legacy, that star quality that we call... Rex Factor! What have we got? We've got... He overcomes the abdication crisis, settles mm. a ship, the Second World War, all that sort of stuff, and he does have a role you know, in building morale, mm. and he flips visits and all this sort of stuff, overcomes his stammer, and of course we have things like the NHS and all this yeah, great stuff happening. Stuff. On the other side, he's kind of a bit dull, mm-hmm. overshadowed by Edward VIII and Churchill, who's the real yeah. leader, and of course Attlee, also mm. post-war leader, and indeed his own wife. And you can argue to what extent is he really relevant to all of this? Is he just an ordinary man while watching great yeah. events going on around him? How yeah. much do we credit him with all the great stuff that goes on? Or is he just sort of keeping the well, clock ticking over while... Yeah, while everyone else does it. Does all the... The thing is, that's 
that's now the role of a monarch, really. He's yeah. We, we, it's we're studying. We're increasingly we've just been studying the period. Mm. So if he did get more involved, things might not have turned out as they did. Yeah. And he's meant to be constitutional, so stuff's going on. The dull bit. Um, I can't help but think that that's just a complete reaction to what happened before. And he really was, as he said, the rocking throne. He's trying to steady mm. the ship, and that's exactly what was needed in thirty six. But crikey, that was what was needed in the Second World War. Mm. Churchill did actually say if Edward VIII had still been king in 1940, things would have been... Very, yeah, very, very different. Well, he would have posed it up to the Nazi... Well, who knows? But it was it was exactly what was needed. Much like... Who was it? William IV? Yes. yes. It was what was needed at the time. Mm. A steady, steady hand. And on top of that, he was there in the war. He was there being that that very solid figure that you could refer back to although you might not needed to to tell the story of the war he was he was constantly there he was doing what he could at the time going to visit the blitzed out houses all this kind of stuff and overcame the stammer those those last those last three for me completely encapsulate what it might not be true now but what came to be seen as the stereotypical British approach mm. He overcame I mean it might have been heroic losses in many ways that he wasn't meant to be king and mm. he eventually came there overcame this stammer second world war we just sort of somehow came through the abdication crisis just stiff up a lip just carry on carry on carry on he was the archetypal British monarch in that sense but when you think of the second world war who, who, who's the face that you yeah, see Churchill. who's the voice yeah. that you hear yeah and that's the, it's this sort of tricky thing where you think is it just being king in the in the world war is that like an automatic no no because like George the yeah. fifth got it as well mm. of course but you see a lot more of stuff he had to personally get involved yeah. with yeah which I think was what elevated him to have it he just seemed to have such a such a what we now take for granted as a, a I don't know what I mean by this but a sort of mm. British approach where he was just muddling through <laughs> and did what he could. And at, the, and at the very end, not him, but his reign, then bequeathed all this incredible stuff to the rest of us. So it was mm. that transition where he, he got us through the tough bit, or his reign got us through the tough bit, and then set up this social landscape for the future. The thing for the Rex match, I think, which had to decide is, there's the incredible, you know, we've got the Second World War and then the Labour government, these sort of incredible mm. things that happen. And I suppose the question is, accepting that, you know, it happens during their reign, the constitution monarch, so you have to give them a certain yeah. amount of credit for that. But does he have something on top of that yeah. that gives him the extra thing? And the thing I sort of wondered is, if you could combine the kind of the cool, flash, modern bit of Edward VIII with the kind of dutiful yeah. getting down and just sort of doing the right thing mm. with George VI, mm. you'd have like the perfect... Yeah, you just need that streak. And the thing is, does George VI... George VI... Because George the Sixth, he was catching. <laughs> <laughs> Does he have that certain something without getting caught up in Churchill and? But that's Patton what I mean. And, I think yeah. that certain something is his lack of it. Like he, <laughs> he's, he's just, he's just. He, I, I think in the, in the war that would have could have been a distraction, maybe. Mm. And you needed Churchill was doing that. He had that sewn up. He got that coming. Yeah. I think people. I think the country needed perhaps just a figure. Mm. And can you have an X factor, Rex factor? Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, Simon. Um, <laughs> just, just for not having. I don't know. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Though that, mm. that was his. That was his purpose. 
and then all this fabulous stuff happened I almost I think what I'm getting at is that I'd like to give it to him because I feel like he deserved it he, he it should mm. be like a a posthumous honour yes. <laughs> um, but and understanding at the same time he doesn't have that certain something mm. <laughs> it's weird I'm, I'm conflicted when we come to review all of them mm. and we go back and remember the stuff that the old monarchs did yeah, and then we get to George VI and then we think well if you take out actually Churchill and Attlee and all that stuff on a personal level he's admirable yeah but is he ah. yeah you almost want to give it to him as a well I, I do as a little sort of a well done a thank you but yeah, <laughs> yeah but um, he's a Rex Factor medal yeah yeah, yeah. Ooh, and he'd go oh I wasn't expecting that and no. neither would anyone else but it'd be nice it would yeah um, so oh, really... final decision I think I want to give the Rex Factor uh, kind of begrudgingly but knowing that he definitely had it to Churchill mm. and to highlight it to Attlee yeah. and so by giving it to George VI I'm giving it to both of them I, I want to and I understand if you say no mm-hmm. well, you I'm going to say yes ooh I am going to say no ah damn you it is tempting and I do kind of feel a bit guilty about it but I just it's just that something that I just don't yeah. think is quite and it feels really harsh it feels like that was what he was there to do was to not be that yeah. star man but I do kind of feel like you know if we had a thing where we were reviewing prime ministers yeah. or a thing where we were reviewing um, queen consorts mm. then we'd have quite a few awards that we'd be giving out yeah period. that's true and yeah. I, I just sort of feel that I don't feel that Jules Fix has quite got it Mm. in relation to the others I think if we lined all the monarchs up at the end and then we saw George VI he'd be one way think mm, mm. is he up there with Henry II and you know, sort of Henry V and Edward III and Charles II and... well and then I think it's quite appropriate then that he got 50% of a Rex Factor yeah. <laughs> he, got, he nearly got there um, ah. so it's a not quite for George VI very very close and yeah. I do feel a little bit guilty but mm. You've got to be harsh. We can't have too many of these. And you can't feel as bad as I do about Edgar the Peace, but I'm still getting sticks. Still about. getting uh, tweets. <laughs> so that is it for George VI, and that is it for Complete Monarchs. Well, yeah. I mean, what are we going to do? We'll, up- we'll update you. We've got lots of plans. We do have lots of plans. We will be doing Elizabeth II. Mm-hmm. However, we're done with George VI, so until next time. Yeah, stay tuned on Facebook and on Twitter, and we'll keep you all updated with stuff stuff going on goodbye for me cheerio Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.